your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA, Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA, Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. So what questions did you find, Linda, in the financial presses this week that might well, there, be of interest? There was a question uh regarding no reason to delay benefits past age 70. And a writer uh, had a question. I would like to delay claiming Social Security benefits for as long as possible so that I could maximize the survivor benefit for my wife, who is eligible for a smaller benefit than mine. So this person had a question. Can I delay my Social Security benefit past age 70? so that I can earn extra delayed retirement credits. Well, the answer is that, yes, you can delay claiming benefits past age 70. Yes, you can, but you'll be throwing money away. For every year you wait past your full retirement age, you do earn an extra 8% a year by delaying retirement credits, but only until you reach 70, Linda. Delaying past that age simply means you're foregoing benefits and throwing them away. So that's the answer to that question. Okay. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000, 919-872-7000. And here's another retirement question. Can I take money from my SEP IRA uh, while I'm still working, and do I need to show a hardship? Okay, well, the answer here is, yes, you can take distributions from your SEP IRA at any time. Now, a SEP is what? A SEP is a, it's like a 401k, but it's for the self-employed. Exactly. It's a self-employment retirement plan. So the SEP IRA, yes, you can take distributions from your SEP IRA at any time. There's no need to prove a hardship like you would with a 401k to get anything out. However, you do have to be aware that your distribution will be included as taxable income. Now, when you take a distribution if you from your SEP IRA, if you're under 59 and a half, you will also pay a 10% penalty tax. But the short answer is, can I take it out? Yes. Do I need to show any hardship? No. Well, here's another question, and it has to do with IRAs as well. My daughter has children of her own, but my two sons don't yet. So I intend to leave my IRA equally to all three children, but I want to make sure that my grandchildren get my daughter's share if she dies before I do. So can I do that? Well, the short answer is yes. Most beneficiary forms offer what they call per stirpes or per capita designations. Now, per stirpes directs that a beneficiary's descendants inherit his or her share. Well, with a per capita distribution, if a beneficiary dies before the IRA owner, then that beneficiary's share is split among the other beneficiaries. So your daughter's share in this case would be split between the sons. If you fail, then you got a problem because if you fail to choose an option, it's going to be more than likely per capita 
and that means you have disinherited your grandchildren. Of course, you can write the words per stirpes, and that's the best thing to do. And sometimes there's often a place where you can actually put the beneficiary and the percentage that you would like for them to inherit and even be more clear. We find that often that it's um, on the forms. They try and make it as user-friendly as possible. If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. Let's take a caller. Hello, is this Ron? This is Doug Lewis, Linda Lewis, Deborah Lewis. How are you, Ron? How can we help you? I'm currently handling my mother's finances for her. She's in a nursing home, and I'm the only child, and I have power of attorney. And she has approximately $1.2 million worth of assets. And I currently have about, uh, I think, about $1 million with a financial advisor who's been putting that in places to generate income for her, for her uh, nursing facility. And so that's generating mo- pretty much most of the money that she needs. However, I still have about $200,000 cash that I'm wondering what I should do with. Uh, I'm thinking about perhaps putting that somewhere to, to generate some growth so we have a little growth. At- I got it. Okay, Ron, hold on one second. So it sounds like in this situation, his question is about his mother's yeah, situation. Yeah. He, he said $1.2 million has, of assets. Yes, he has the power of attorney. Yeah, but I wasn't clear. Wait till he gets back on. I wasn't clear where those assets are all investable assets. Ron, are you back on? Hello, Ron. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. wasn't clear on the $1.2 million if those assets are all investment assets or are they real estate. When you said assets, did you mean investment assets? Yes, they're divided between uh, equities and bonds. All right, so there's about, all right, now give it to me again. The breakout is, you said uh, a million is somewhere else? All right, and the goal, your goal is what? More income, well, right? Well, we're fine with income. We want to try to generate a little bit of growth with the remaining balance. All right, well, first of all, I'm not exactly sure if you're doing it the best way. When you say a million dollars in stocks and bonds, uh, that's like saying, you know, I'm a male and I'm married to a female. I mean, it's, it's so generic. It doesn't, it does. I don't approach the asset allocation in that way, the way we do it. Now we look to try and see if it's possible to achieve an overall growth of 7%. Now there's no way to ever guarantee what the future will be, but we can go ahead and build some sort of an asset allocation model looking historically. And here we don't like picking individual stocks and bonds because you're sort of playing a, I don't want to say a crapshoot, but obviously a, a stock is only a worthless piece of paper until you sell it, right? Right. Uh, and, and a bond right now is also extremely dangerous because if you don't hold it to maturity, then if interest rates go up, the value of your bond, if you try to sell it, is going to drop. So both of those types of approaches, how much in stocks, how much in bonds, is not the way we would approach it. This is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. Our number at the office is 919-872-7000. Call me at 919-872-7000. Let me ask you a question, Ron. Is the money in a discretionary account? Uh, about $1 million is invested in equities and bonds, leaving about 200000 cash. Like where someone is uh, making the decisions, or are you instructing the advisor 
uh, on how you want to invest it. Because when you say, do I, I want more appreciation, is it a decision that you'd be making with the 200 saying I need to invest in something and then telling someone to, you know, to do that for you? Well, that's what I'm not sure about. Currently, it is in a, you know, in a financial advisor's fund where he's making the decisions about it. And he will sometimes call me and consult me on some decisions. All right. Well, let me comment on that part of it. First of all, we disapprove of that. We don't think you should ever give up control to where somebody else has discretion and buys and sells on your behalf. That's the first thing. We think you should... Oh, I'm sorry? Yes, I see. Okay. So we don't believe in discretionary accounts like that where you sign over power of attorney to uh, another financial advisor and he makes the moves for you. Because, quite frankly, uh, if he works for one of the giant firms... uh, he could be fired one day. We don't know how long he's been there and so forth. And what's his track record as an individual and so on. So that's not the way we prefer to do it. We prefer, first of all, to take the entire portfolio. So if it's a million two, I'm going to maybe say, uh, let me see. So much in an emergency fund. Well, hang on for one second. And let me let me play with some numbers. All right. So maybe I'm going to divide it into eight equal units of 150 apiece. Okay. So I'm starting with a number, all right? Now I'm going to start reducing the risk, looking for growth with conservative approach as I move down this model. So if I've got eight, then I'm not going to put eight individual stocks or eight individual bonds or four and four. I'm not going to do that at all. I'm going to look for maybe eight mutual funds whose managers can show me an acceptable 10-year trailing return. And then from there... I want to go ahead and start saying, what kind of fund? Is it a growth and income fund? That's a blue chip stock fund. Is it that has dividends? All right. Is it a growth fund? All right. Is it, in other words, have class diversification after that? Never giving up discretionary control to those. Those are all those funds. I always still want to be in your hand, in your name. Let me ask you a question. Is the, is the need for appreciation because she still has a long life ahead of her? Is yeah, like why? I think that uh, sure, her income needs are pretty much satisfied. So I'm. So you're thinking of you're balance. taking. A, I see. So you're taking a fiduciary responsibility of if her income needs are met, this is going to be the ultimate estate that's passed on after she's passed away. This is Deborah Lewis. Call nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand to set an appointment with me regarding your financial situation. Call me at 919-872-7000. How old is she now? She's 85. 85. And what's her uh, what's her medical or health condition? Well, she uh, she has a mild case of, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, dementia? Not dementia. It's um, Parkinson's. Oh, oh. And she's got very poor eyesight, very poor hearing. She cannot walk. Well, then I'm thinking if we don't need income, I'm thinking a conservatively balanced portfolio, you still should be able to use the model that I just described to you. That's what we use for our clients. If you call my office and schedule an appointment, I will be I will be designing for you a recommended portfolio using that methodology. The difference in what you're doing right now is I would never have anything passed over 
to my discretion where I make moves and uh, no, no, no. I would want each one of the individual investment funds to be owned directly in your name, of course. As the power of attorney for her. As opposed, yeah, you, yeah, you as power of attorney for your mom, of course. So basically, yeah. you know what he's saying, Ron, is you're the one driving the car. Right. 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 You retain the control because, you know, you're an educated person and you love mom and her needs are being provided for. Uh, to have a quality, a comfortable quality of life until the Lord takes her, right? And the size right. of her portfolio probably falls within pretty much, uh, I would say most of our clients have portfolios in that range or a little bit higher. Uh, so it's very, very similar. Okay. Hey, um, Ron, do you have siblings? No, he's an only child. No, I'm the only child. Oh, you're an only child. And do you have a family as well? I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I I can see where you know you you want to take care of mom's needs, and of course, as you said, it's uh, her the income that she's receiving is is supplying the need to pay for the nursing home, right? Right. But this overall, is a, this is an issue of proper stewardship. That's yeah. what it is. You know, we had a client just this past week who was in that situation for the last five years, and then the elderly mother just passed away about four days ago. Uh, and, and they had done a really good job taking care of mom's assets. They really had, yeah. So that she mm-hmm. wanted for nothing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ron, if you jot down our phone number, <clears throat> 919-872-7000. And Ron, this is Deborah. Um, if you want to give me a call, even tonight, I'll be going by the office later on. But um, And I can give you a call tomorrow just with your contact information. And then we can just talk on the phone and then schedule a time together. But... Um, uh, it, it might be the first step in just at least finding out, you know, what else might be available to you to, to complement the income with a little bit of growth in this portfolio. Okay. Yeah. Well, All thank right, you thank very you. much for calling in tonight. We really appreciate it. We hope we helped. Thank you. All right. Have Bye. a wonderful week. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis and Deborah Lewis on News Radio 680 WPTF. Well, Linda, you were going through questions that you had found in the financial presses this week that might be of interest. Did we finish all of them, or is there? Well, I think there was one other one. Doug, Go ahead. And it has to do with an inherited traditional IRA. Um, a, a writer said that they inherited a traditional IRA from their father. Can I roll it into a Roth IRA? Now, this is very interesting. The first answer I'm going to tell you is no. You cannot do that. Non-spouse beneficiaries, so you can always, every married couple can let his surviving spouse roll 100% tax-free the IRA into the surviving spouse's IRA. But if there is no spouse, then it goes to a child or another beneficiary. Now, a non-spouse beneficiary can only roll a traditional IRA to something called an inherited beneficiary, an inherited IRA. Sometimes we call them stretch IRAs or beneficiary IRAs, but these are inherited IRAs. The ownership of the inherited IRA, however, must be worded correctly. It's not a tax-free move, by the way, but it must be worded correctly so that the father's name in this case is still on the account, maybe like John Smith Sr. for the benefit of John Smith Jr., And then you can go ahead and not have to pay the entire tax, which you normally would. 
So if it was a million dollar IRA and the son inherited it, it'd be like paying tax on a million dollar salary bonus that year. Right. Because when you're the non-spouse recipient, uh, what it, unless you are unaware of it, if you receive a very large, the proceeds of a very large IRA from a parent, that means you are now going to have an income that is going to be taxable on your income. So, so you're receiving untaxed dollars, which means now all of a sudden, let's say you made 50000 and you inherit a $100,000 IRA from your father. You now have taxable income of 150000 and you better, you know, so your first thought is, well, how do I limit that? If indeed you don't need it, then there's a big uh, issue you're facing. You're exactly right, Deborah. And the way to do it is this uh, inherited IRA strategy or stretch IRA or beneficiary IRA. That is the strategy. And we found that it gets even more complex because even though the, the IRS may have certain rules, the custodian will have different rules and where you inherited from will have a third set of rules. So working with a certified financial planner can save you a lot of angst later. I think you have uh, you've done a good promo for us. All right. <laughs> so call us at Lewis Financial Management during the week, 919-872-7000. Uh, see our website, DougAndLinda.com. Well, Doug, I was wondering if we could have a little discussion about tips for your elderly parents. Because I find that sometimes when people call in at the office, they have questions about how to help mom and dad make sure that their affairs are in order, especially if one of the parents may be sickly. Tips that the children should use in dealing with elderly parents? Exactly. Very good. I would say the first thing is to find out is there a will? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And if they each have wills, very often you find out they're not both wills. I speak to so many people that are in their 60s and 70s and they've never drawn up a will. Number two, we want to find out when the will was last reviewed. Exactly. Children should ask the parents, when was your will last reviewed? Parents will generally say, oh, well, I don't need to review it. It's long and say it's real simple. I just leave everything to your ma or everything to your pa. Well, the kids need to go ahead and let mom and dad know that the laws have changed, dad. The laws have changed, mom. And things can be very, very messed up if we don't do it right. So get right. your get your will if revised. If at all possible, mm-hmm. get the will of mom and dad in your hands and review it yourself with the help of a certified financial planner. Number two, consider if a revocable living trust is advisable. In many cases, it is. I had someone call the other day about a durable power of attorney, and they had no idea that a durable power of attorney, Linda, can be the worst estate planning tool if you don't know what you're doing. Because you may think that a power of attorney will solve all the problems, and then all of a sudden, your father or your mother becomes incapacitated. You want to go ahead and start helping them take care of their financial affairs. You use this durable power of attorney, and lo and behold, you're told, I'm sorry, we won't accept it by the financial institution that you're trying to go to. It's too old, right? Actually, there are many mutual fund families that say a durable power of attorney is only good if it's 10 days old or less. Can you believe that? So, Shocking. So a revocable living trust is the answer there. Joint ownership is another strategy. But those are the things I would look at, first of all, the tips there. Then I would go and look at the executor's position, find out from mom and dad who's the executor. Number three, they should get an analysis of the estate. You know, the worst estate that you can have is the one called I love you, Will. I leave everything to my wife. Or she says, I leave everything to my husband. Well, a lot of times there are attorneys to be blamed, right? I have to to admit, Linda, you are absolutely right. They collected the fees, but they sure didn't advise their clients properly. You know why? 
because so many people, when I ask them who drew up this will, they say, well, it was uh, George. He's been our family attorney for years. And I say, well, is George an estate attorney? Well, he does everything. He's done our real estate. He's done this and that. But, you know, an attorney who is not a specialist in estate law and doesn't know the difference between an irrevocable trust and a revocable trust, a testamentary trust, an inter vivos trust, who isn't current on the specialties of estate planning, that's very, very bad to have your wills and trust done by that person. That's like having a brain surgery done by a, a chiropractor or by a, you know, by a, um, a veterinarian or whatever. I mean, he'd be great on animals, but he's no good. I don't want him operating on my brain. And that's what these wills that I'm looking at so often are. They have not been done by estate planning attorneys. So if you're listening right now, make sure that you get that will out or that trust out and make sure you read it or have your kids read it and make sure that your affairs are in order. I... I choke sometimes when I speak to people, and I either find out they haven't drawn up a will, or, as you said, their attorney did whatever they thought was necessary. But when you had your will drawn up, and then 10, 20 years passes by, 30 years, the your laws estate have has appreciated. Okay, okay, your estate has changed, but the laws have changed also. Exactly. And if all of a sudden the value of the estate has greatly appreciated, right? That's where the estate taxes can be a real problem. And I love you, Will, is an accident waiting to happen. Work with a financial planner. And if you have any questions locally, you can call us at the office at 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. What I find when I speak to so many people is that a lot of our elderly people either have their money spread over two or three or five banks, a lot of CDs. and I mean, the thing can be really complicated. And sometimes kids can help their parents just simplify things, mm-hmm. get everything so that mom understands if dad predeceases her, that everything is understandable for mom. Mm-hmm. Or even that everything's understandable for the kids so that they're not faced with a, a terrible estate problem or a probate problem, right? The probate rules are so confusing state to state. If you, for example, happen to have property in two or three different states, then you have to open up probate issues in each of those states. Now, this can be avoided with a revocable living trust, and you bypass all of that. That's one of the advantages. But on the other hand, many people call us about revocable living trust because they've heard me talk about them on the air, and they think this is the tool that's going to reduce their estate taxes, and it doesn't. Revocable trusts do nothing. So the revocable living trust, what, gives you the privacy factor? The revocable living trust avoids probate expenses, takes away the problem caused by a durable power of attorney, deals with the question of incapacitation. When you become incapacitated, someone is set up to go ahead and handle your affairs while you're still alive. It also solves the problem of the cost after death when there are assets in different states. There is some protection against creditors. Also, the matter of confidentiality. When you die, nobody knows what you owned because it's in this revocable trust and it's not listed in the newspaper, but it does not solve the question of estate taxes. So make sure that you understand the fine details of your estate planning matters. Doug, along with, yes, exactly. And along with the estate planning issues that we've just discussed, people need to make sure that they are adequately insured, right? I guess when you do the analysis... If your financial planner goes through and determines what is the value of your estate, then they work backwards, right? Determining if there's going to be an estate tax problem or 
you know, if there's more insurance needed to protect the family. Insurance is one of the biggest nightmares that I see when I look at clients' estates and client situations. For example, some very few people even know that they should never own life insurance in their own name because it becomes part of the taxable estate of the one that dies. They think, well, gee, insurance benefits, are they pass to the beneficiary tax-free, don't they? That's exactly right. However, they're taxable in the estate of the deceased. So most people have no idea that the ownership of that policy should never be in your own name. And then who should it be in the It should, should be in the name by. in an irrevocable life insurance trust or in the name of one of the children, but never should it be in your own name. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, DougAndLinda.com. Well, let's take another call. Well, let's take Larry's call, Linda. Uh, Larry, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Here. Planner. How can I help you? Calling to find out uh, what your uh, thoughts are about uh, getting into stock mutual funds uh, now. Well, the real situation will differ according to whoever the client is. Larry, tell me a little bit about yourself, and I'll tell you uh, what I think you should do. How old are you? 53. You're 53 years old. Are you married or single? Married. Married. Uh, Are you employed? Uh, Yes. All right. Your wife employed? Yes. Two incomes. What's your income? It's uh, $50,000 a year. All right. And your wife's? About half that. Uh, All right. So family income, about $75,000, two earner income. Any children still at home? No. Okay. Um, what does your present portfolio look like, not counting retirement assets just yet? Uh, mutual funds, uh, but mainly in index funds, large company and small company. Uh, All right. So how much do you have right now in your stock funds altogether? Uh, probably about $100,000. All right. So you've got $100,000, and those are mainly in index funds. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, anything in bond funds? Uh. No, just uh, probably about a ten thousand dollars in a treasury index fund. Ten thousand in a treasury <clears throat> index fund. Uh, how about cash accounts, emergency money market CDs, things like that? It's mainly the the money that I took out of the stock market, and that's probably about uh, another fifty thousand dollars. All right. So you, that's the total that you've got to make your portfolio the hundred and sixty thousand altogether. That's correct. Now, what about over on the retirement side? What do you have in retirement funds? Um, I have a uh, 401k that probably is about uh, uh, $50,000, and again, that's in uh, uh, stock index funds. All right. And uh, anything else other than the 401k? No, that's it. How about your wife? Any retirement on her end? None there. All right. Our last question is, uh, living expenses, do you have any idea what your expenses are running? Probably run about... uh, Twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars a year, something like that. All right, pretty much able to live just about on your wife's salary, uh, and that means that you're you're accumulating a fair amount of excess each month. Yes, that's true. All right, how long do you want to be working? In other words, what's the target date for your retirement or your financial independence? Uh, probably plan on working for an, for another. Uh, Four or five years, I would say. Well, it doesn't look real quickly. It doesn't look like you'll be able to make it with just these numbers alone. Okay. This is Deborah Lewis. Our number at the office is 919 
In other words, if I go ahead and if I take your 401k and, uh, well, right now, if you were to walk away today with your 50 and the 160, Mm -hmm. that's going to be 210,000. And assuming we uh, reposition it for income, you'd get maybe a 7% current yield. That'd give you about 14,000 a year income, Mm -hmm. which, of course, would not support you right now. Right. I. on the other hand, if we've got five years and we had 210, let me see, possible that you could build that up to about 340. And then the real key would be the excess of your, what we call your net margin, the excess that you're not spending, that monthly uh, excess that you're accumulating because your expenses are basically being covered almost totally by your wife's salary. Uh-huh. Uh, if we did a true financial plan, that would be the one thing that I would be focusing on. Uh, the the hundred th- In other words, I'd look at your present asset base. Now, your present asset base, starting with the mutual funds, the $100,000, is it in one index fund or several? Uh, in several. All right. What you'd want to do is you would want to, and I really don't like index funds. Okay. Uh, I think index funds are um, uh, a guaranteed mediocrity. Uh-huh. Uh, and if you're going into um, mutual funds, you really should be going in, uh, putting your money in the hands of a manager. Uh-huh. In other words, the stock market will go up or down, but if a good manager is worth his salt or her salt, then he or she will make money no matter which way the market goes because he's always betting that he can do better than the market. Uh-huh. Whereas an index fund is the exact opposite. An index fund just goes up with the market, down with the market. Right. So uh, I would get out of the index funds, but I think the way that I would approach it is I would go ahead and take the entire portfolio right now over on the personal side, the 160000 and uh, I think I'd keep 10000 in cash as you're an emergency fund. Mm-hmm. Keep that in a money market account, and that would go ahead and leave you 150000 and then I think I'd go ahead and maybe one fifty. yeah, I think maybe seven twenties. I'd break it into seven $20,000 mutual funds. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd work with a certified financial planner to go ahead and select the funds, but I think I would be either in growth funds, growth and income funds, maybe a balanced fund, uh, maybe an equity income fund, although uh, a little time evaluating your risk tolerance to see if, 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 if you could even shy away from an equity income fund, uh-huh. uh, an international fund, maybe a world fund. Uh-huh. And, but the most important thing would be to set up an automatic pay-yourself-first plan to capture that net margin, that extra twenty-five or 30000 a year uh-huh. that you should be able to capture over the next five years, which should be able to, uh, with a little analysis, I think a good financial planner should be able to get you to the point where you can make it in five years. Uh, but I would do it with the help of a certified financial planner, developing it as an overall pattern. I wouldn't just go ahead and try and pick any fund or any index fund or any manager – I do it as part of an overall program. Okay. And if you you know if you'd like any other information, you can call us at the office in Raleigh, and that number, Larry, is eight seven two seven thousand. That's USA seven thousand. One of um, our favorite News and Observer ride. Um uh, question and answer people had a question posed to her this week that said, my mom recently passed away 
and I've inherited her stock portfolio, and I have some questions. Some of the cost basis shows on the statements, but many of the stocks do not. I've never owned individual stocks before and plan to sell most of these and invest in mutual funds. Some of the stocks were acquired many years ago, and I have no idea how to go about determining what the price was when mom bought these. It looks like some of the stocks she had split, some dividend, some paid dividends outright, while others bought more shares with reinvested dividends. My questions are, one, how do I determine the cost basis for those holdings where it is not indicated? And two, do I need to hold all the stock for a year from her date of death to get the long-term capital gains tax rate? It's good news here. Zero tax. Mm -hmm. There is no tax because, and you don't have to even worry about what was that cost basis. Right. All right. But there is a nightmare if it had not happened because as the question was written, what about stock dividends? Uh, What about reinvested dividends? All those things do affect basis. But if indeed something is inherited, it gets step up in basis means whatever. Don't have to know what the original basis was because the basis now is when, the value that of at the time of her death. Now, let me ask you, Doug, um, the second part. It seems that she's smart enough to know that there's a reason to ask that second question. Yeah. So why don't you hit that one for okay. a second, Deborah? Because so that's very good. When she asks, do I need to hold all the stocks for a year from her date of death? She's wanting to know, is it short-term or long-term capital gains? And that's what she's, that's what she's hinting, hinting at, at. Or, or addressing. And it is. It's a big deal. Because not in the story of death and inherited, but if you buy a stock yes. and you sell it six months later, let's right. say you buy it and your cost basis is $1,000, and you sell it for two thousand dollars, then how much is your gain? A thousand. All right. You sold it within a year, so you have to pay tax on a thousand dollar gain. Right. And the th- uh, the short term gains are going to be similar to ordinary income tax. That's right. The Very I- high. The IRS says that if you sell it in that year's time, now the amount of tax you pay on that gain or that profit is the highest tax there is. That's a better way to say it, yes. Yeah, it's the it's highest, highest tax ta- there is. That's right. It's like salary income. That's right. That's called short-term capital gain. But if you hold that stock that you bought for $1,000 for one year and one day and then sell it for 2000 you still made $1,000 profit. But-, but now you pay long-term capital gains tax rates. So right. now, long-term capital gain is obviously very powerful, much more powerful. Reducing the amount that you're going to have to pay. Right. And the writer here was confused. It has nothing to do with death. <laughs> That's what I was going to bring it back to. But in this situation, she doesn't have to worry about it. You inherit it. You don't have to wait a year. Right. This is Deborah Lewis of Lewis Financial Management. Call us at 919-872-7000. To set up an appointment to speak about your situation. 919-872-7000. Well, Doug, I speak to so many people at the office that purchase a mutual fund or some investment vehicle that they are not real clear about. And isn't there a gap between education and the purchase of these vehicles? You know, Lynn, it's a really good question you're asking because it's probably the biggest problem we're facing today. There is a financial illiteracy out there, and people seem to think that buying investments is sort of like going into the donut shop, and I think I'll buy myself a, you know, uh, a Frosty Cream or a Blueberry or a Raspberry, and I don't have to do anything about it. I'll just buy it and take a bite and see what it tastes like. 
Well, it doesn't work that way. Uh, investments need to be understood, and you don't understand them unless you're educated, and you're not educated unless somebody educates you. And unfortunately, most of the purchases of investments today are not being done through an educational process. They're being done through a sales process. And there is a difference, isn't there? There's a major difference. difference. I mean, it's sort of like uh, somebody calling me and asking me, um, what do I think uh, about his wife? And I say, well, what do you mean what I think about your wife? Don't you know? It's your wife. You should know about your wife. And he says, well, I don't know. I just got married. I don't know anything about her. Well, that's an absurd position, but it's the same absurd position. People say, what do you think about my investment? And I say, well, I don't know about your investment. What'd you buy it for? What do you know about it? And he says, I don't know anything about it. So the obvious question is, well, why'd you buy it? (laughs) Why'd you buy it if you don't know anything about it? But I would have to say in the years and years of practice that I've been in this profession, 90% of the people that I ask the question, why do you own this particular investment? Their answer is, well, my stockbroker told me I should get it. And so it was just sold to them. Yeah, I remember that one time we had one client who thought they had bought a mutual fund and they actually had bought an annuity, right? Right. <laughs> You're exactly right. People don't know. So just to, just to close that, um, people really should understand what it is that they're buying, why they're buying it, and have an overall strategy as to what they're doing in the short range and in the long range. Right, Doug? In my opinion, there are four things that they should know about any investment. And if they know these four things, they will know everything they need to know. And what are those four things? The first thing they need to know is what are the features of the investment? Now, features are guarantees. In other words, you want to know whether you're buying a bond or a stock. You want to know whether you're buying a piece of real estate or whether you're buying a piece of equipment. You want to know what it is that you're buying. What are the features? Of the investment that are guaranteed. Okay. Second thing, you want to know what are the expected benefits? What are the expected benefits? Now, benefits can never be guaranteed. Well, they can be, but you want to know what are the benefits that are expected but not guaranteed. Okay. For example, you buy a stock. Do you have any guarantee that when you're going to sell that stock, you're going to sell it for more than you paid for it? No guarantee. Right. You could lose your money, couldn't you? True. But you buy it because of what reason? Because you're hoping to make a profit or right. you're hoping it will that's grow. An, that's a benefit that you expect. You expect you'll sell it for more than you pay for it. All right. Another investment you may buy is a bond or CD. Why do you buy that bond? You want interest. You want income from it. You see, that's different from selling it for more than you paid for it. That's an expected benefit. Okay. So you need to know what are the features that are guaranteed. Number two, what are the benefits that are expected but not guaranteed? Number three, you want to know the risks. What are the risks that it's necessary for you to be willing to take to get the benefits that are expected? And number four, you want to know the cost to get in. Any commissions or any loads, what's the cost to get in to be able to play the game? Okay. If you would like some more information on this, I'll be happy to either send you some information or discuss it with you further. And you can call me at the office, and the number is 8727000. That's USA 7000, and I'll be happy to do what I can to answer your questions. How can I help you, Will? This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. Um, Hi, Doug. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. I have some property that I inherited that I'm going to sell and have a fairly large capital gain on it. When did you inherit the property, Will? A couple years ago. 
All right. What's the value of the property? It's it's selling for thirty three five. Thirty three. Not exactly sure what the basis is, but it's around ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And the basis? Uh, how did you get the basis? Well, that was the cost. That's what you. Who who left it to you? Well, actually, it was my mother inherited it, and she's been giving it to us gradually. Um, now wait a minute. I'm confused. You said you inherited it. Well, it ultimately it was my grandmother's, um, but it's come through my mother to me. This is very crucial. The question I'm asking you. Did you inherit the property, or did you receive it by gift? I received it by gift. So you didn't inherit it? Right. Okay, that's very unfortunate. Because if you had inherited it, there'd be no capital gains. Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I think it's inherited property, but it's really not. It's not inherited. Unfortunately, it's not. I was hoping you were going to tell me that the, that the 10000 was what your the basis that your mom, who owned it, had left it to you in her will, and... When she died, that you thought that her basis was yours, and that is not the case. Right. If you are gifted property, then the cab, then the basis is the same basis as the person who owned it that gives it to you. That basis carries over to you. Right. On the other hand, if I was you it went that way when you inherited it as well. Worst thing you can do, because there is a wonderful situation called a step up in basis. For example, let's assume that the property you inherited. That no, that you received by gift. Let's say you that that it was worth thirty three thousand five hundred the day that you got it. If it was worth thirty three thousand five hundred the day you got it, and the basis of the person that left it to you, your mom, let's say, was ten thousand, then your basis would be thirty three thousand five hundred. Right. The basis of the person who inherits property is. The value on the day they inherit it, which means you turn around and sell it the next day and there is zero capital gains. But if she gives it to you and you turn around and sell it, then you pay tax on twenty two thousand five hundred twenty three thousand five hundred. Well, given the option, I'll keep my mother. <laughs> well, no, the, be the best thing, the best thing is to make sure that nobody gives you anything if you think you're going to sell it. See, that's the whole that's the whole strategy. Never let somebody give away to you. What you're going to hold anyway until that person passes away because you're really shooting yourself in the foot. See what I'm saying? Right. You miss all the step up in basis. Okay. Okay. Well, any more? Yeah, by the way, any more questions, give me a call at the office and I'll go over your specific numbers if you want. If you want. Well, my number at the office during the week is 872-7000. And you can speak to Linda. Okay. Thanks. Time I've heard your program, but I enjoy it. Well, good. Thank you for listening, Will. Okay, thanks. Well, Doug, you know, there, there's often a lot of good advice out there or a lot of ineffective advice, and then there's a lot of bad advice. <laughs> so I found three examples of bad advice. Um, one of them was about how you could just, oh, I don't know if this is exactly what he said, but sort of get rich quick the lazy way. Where was that article? That was, was in that the, the Wall, Wall Street, Street Journal? Journal article, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, okay. That, I saw that article. That was the make more money, worry less article. That was really bad advice. Uh, the writer in this particular article said, if you're investing for long-term goals such as retirement, keep it simple with a portfolio of three to six broad-based, low-cost mutual funds that can pay off in the long run. You might look at a book called The Investor's Manifesto or take one of the other lazy portfolios like the book called The Margarita Portfolio and uh, all kinds of easy, lazy ways just to let your money grow and don't worry about it. And even what about, let's look at the target date funds. Well, that's nonsense. There is no lazy way to do anything. No one accidentally got to financially 
financial independence. That's right. <laughs> and then there was an, there's also some bad advice about uh, how to save for retirement. Well, I remember that article. That was also, I think, a Wall Street yes, Journal sir. article. And that one was sort of the, the, the basis of the other article because this one was a story about a, a research project that had come out. The, uh, the story was invest $100,000 in a typical retirement account when you're 25. How much money should you expect when you collect your gold watch 40 years later? Based on standard assumptions, average would be $1.2 million. Well, here's the problem. That average masks a lot of problems and a lot of trouble. Because more than half the time in the study, you'd end up with less than seven hundred and fifty thousand, uh-huh. and a lot of the time, you'd end up with three hundred and fifty thousand. So, from anywhere from a million two to three hundred fifty thousand is going to make a big, big difference. And and that's how you can play with numbers. These averages. Many retirement planners, including the people from the four hundred one k company, just host these free seminars at your workplace, and they get their forecast from these future average returns in the past. But the real question is, what can you do about it? Well, some of the authors concluded that the best thing you can do is assume poor returns and start saving much more. And that was good. Yes. Uh, And then uh, there was a citation of, well, where did did they get this information from? And the writer said that at a social gathering, he once met the head of a target date retirement funds company, and he asked the guy, well, why? Why were so many people just taking the target date funds in which allocations are more and more conservative over time? And he said, well, that's what the clients want. It's what we can sell, he confessed. Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management. 919-872-7000. 919-872-7000. It had nothing to do with what was actually likely to be best for the clients in the long run, which happened to be more and more stocks in the funds, not less and less stocks. But the bottom line really is this kind of bad advice that's being promoted out there, you, you need to find a certified financial planner. You need to find someone that can go ahead and work with you individually. I would say another piece of bad advice that's out there that, that, that frequently makes the news is about fund, mutual funds and expenses and what it really means to your investment and how well your investment can do. What, what, what would you add to that? Well, yeah, there's, there's the story of the expense ratio in mutual funds, Deborah. Okay, And the expense ratio is a very important thing. Uh, it's how much is the cost of running the fund, the salary of the mutual fund managers, the rent to the buildings, the marketing expenses, all those things are part of the expense ratio. This happens every single year, and it's got nothing to do with loads or commissions. This is the expense ratio. Well, there are some writers, and I disagree with them, I think it's lousy advice, that says, oh, just look for the real small mutual funds, because these new tiny small funds, very often there are... uh, the willingness to cut the, ex- yeah, the to waive fees. the expenses, right, Linda, and cut them down. Well, that sounds great, except you've just walked into a big trap of risk mm-hmm. because the trade-off there is that these small new funds, which might have less and less expenses temporarily to get themselves up and running, also have the highest risks. You want the biggest funds, not the smallest funds. And then in the realm of big funds, yes, indeed. 
You should look for the lowest expense ratios. You should be aware of them. If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, DougAndLinda.com. That's DougAndLinda.com. And I do believe we have a caller. Doris, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you this evening? Yes, I have been told that since I cannot sell my home, and I have a fairly large mortgage, uh-huh. that it is possible for me to have the deed signed over to the bank's mortgage company, saying, here, it's yours back, and be done with it. Of course, under the watchful eye and with the advice and counsel of a real estate attorney. But if I can't sell it and don't want foreclosure because I don't want any damage to my credit, what are the consequences okay. of doing that? That's a very good question. What you're talking about is a vehicle called deed in lieu of foreclosure or deed in lieu. And that's exactly right. Sometimes banks will allow that and sometimes they won't. If your bank will allow you to sign over a deed in lieu, that's a deed in lieu of foreclosure, yeah. then basically you're telling the bank, I can't make the payments on this thing. And instead of me stopping the payments and you foreclosing, I'll just give you the house. That's the definition of a deed in lieu of foreclosure. You are deeding the house over to the person or the entity that you owe the money to, namely the bank. Mm-hmm. Now, how much is the size of the mortgage? How much do you owe? Two thirty-three and change. All right. So we and I can make the payments. It's simply that I don't want to remain here, and I can't sell it. Mm-hmm. And if worse comes to worst, I was told that this. All right. Now this let me exp- would be my only choice. That's exactly correct. Now let me explain to you what happens at that time. You will sign over a deed in lieu of foreclosure if the bank allows it. Mm-hmm. Okay. If the bank says no, then. They won't take that deed back. They will initiate foreclosure proceedings, and then they'll get it back anyway. But if they're nice enough to let you sign over a deed in lieu of foreclosure, Mm -hmm. then as far as you're concerned, there has been no foreclosure, and there's nothing on your credit. That's exactly right. Now let's go to see what else happens. The IRS now gets a notice that you received income of $233,000. And that income of $233,000 is going to go ahead and cost you approximately $93,000 of income taxes. So How you, can the IRS consider a total loss? Well, that's one of the unique things about our tax structure. Ah. The logic, and I'm not saying I agree with the logic, but the logic goes like this, that you have a debt right now. If you put down a minus $233,000 on a piece of paper, that's a minus. The only way for you to bring this down to a zero is to put a plus 233 next to it. If you have a minus 233,000 and a plus $233,000, now you have zero debt. Mm -hmm. If you go ahead and tell the IRS that you no longer have any debt, which is true, Mm -hmm. then the IRS says, well, you must have received $233,000 of income to wipe it out. And that is called the forgiveness of debt. As far as our income tax system is concerned, forgiveness of debt is considered income, and you will have to report on your income tax return income of $233,000, and the taxes on that will be about $93,000. I can't afford it. That's called phantom income. So you need to be very aware that, yes, you can deed over 
And I've had many clients come to me in the past few years Mm -hmm. who have had millions of dollars of real estate with millions of dollars of mortgages, and they'd like to go ahead. And sometimes we call the banks, and they are willing to take deed backs, Mm -hmm. deed in lieu of foreclosure, and sometimes they're not. But on the other hand, when they will, we have to always analyze the tax impact. Now, there are ways that we can work with that, but you have to accept the fact that there will be a $233,000 income generated if you walk away from that debt. If I just walked away from it, and they auctioned off the house. My understanding is that, let's say they got Mm $150,000. I would be responsible for the difference between $150,000 and $233,000. Right. Or if they take a deed in lieu of foreclosure and they sell it, then the difference is what you would report as taxable income. There's no way out of this. No. Thank you, Doug. You're welcome, Doris. I'm sorry to give you the bad news. It is bad. Very bad. Call my office if you'd like to set up an appointment. I can show you a few other strategies around that, but there's nothing on the surface that I can tell you other than just that. That's the tax law. Mm. That number to call is 872-7000. That's USA 7000 in Raleigh. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 605 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.